in the core Buddhist teachings known as the Paticca Samapada, and that's where the Buddha outlines how uh, suffering is caused in most people's lives, stress and suffering. And this idea is called uh, Nama Rupa. It's never really terrifically defined, or certainly it's difficult to translate what it means. It's kind of actually, you can define it as each individual's core psychological makeup, which exists from a very early age of life. In the chain, the Buddha says, ripe along with the very introduction of consciousness in human life, there is this development of our core psychobiological individual makeup. And interestingly enough, um, this idea that something happens very, very early in life that has far-reaching implications into our adult lives and especially our behaviors and how we experience stress in our life is, of course, become 2,500 years later extremely well-documented in uh, virtually the entire world of psychology. It actually is an idea that has been present through much of human culture at different times. Around 1800, Wordsworth wrote a poem where he said the child is the father of the man, and he goes on in that poem to state that the things in life that bring us joy and emotional responses is set in our childhood. Of course, in the hundred years since Freud and Jung, this should really not be mind-blowing ideas. Uh, certainly, Freud posited the idea that there is this series of early psychosexual stages that determine how later on in life our regression and neurosis originates. Uh, Freud posited that there's stages like the oral, anal, genital stage, and if you get stuck in one, then you tend to regress back to that in adult life. And he also had the idea that there's this crucial moment of uh, the Oedipal drama, which revolves around the idea that the one caretaker interferes with the child's desire to bond with another caretaker, which leads the child to hopefully go off in the world and find new love objects, but how that's handled causes shadows into our adult life. Around 1960, uh, two very, very important psychologists, John Bowlby, who's English, and Mary Ainsworth, who's an American, were the founders of what is now called attachment theory. Attachment theory is uh, based on some core observations, largely started by Bowlby in the 19, late 1940s, early 50s, that documented that how well securely bonded a child is with its caregivers determines its behaviors in adult life. The early emotional exchanges between the child and the parent are what determine the adult behaviors, but mold and indoctrinate us in how we act in 
our romances, how we connect with other people, whether we can sustain lasting relationships, whether we will be anxious or confident or avoidant in relationships are all set. According to their research, and it has now been borne out by lots and lots of countless, in fact, clinical studies, somewhere between as early as six months, gulp, and two years of life, the core attachment patterns are, uh, are set, or at least established. <clears throat> as we'll see, these patterns can be changed, but they are very, very deeply ingrained, and it <coughs> takes a lot of work to change our attachment styles. So there are four attachment styles that human beings' behavior can generally be seen to fall into. I am told through all the clinical research that 50% of the population is secure. <laughs> I say I'm told this because in my work in Buddhist counseling and working with Buddhist practitioners, I don't see that. <laughs> but, well, let's face it, nobody comes rolling into Buddhist sanghas and into counseling <laughs> on a winning streak in their interpersonal lives. But uh, apparently 50% of the world is secure. And what that means is at a very formative age, they felt a reliable sense that whatever emotional state they were in, they could express that emotion and that their caregiver would stop, attune, which means pay attention, maintain attention and then mirror the emotion back so, and that's the pre-verbal way that we communicate. We express an emotion, somebody mirrors it back and in that we feel seen, we feel that our emotion has been understood and then finally the parent does what's called marking. They give a reassuring smile to the infant saying it's okay, I know you just saw something that scared you, or you felt lonely, or you, you're feeling anxious or angry, but I'm here, and you're safe, and everything's going to be okay. So in that exchange where the child has an emotion, the uh, mother or father see it, attune to it, mirror it, and then give some reassurance, is the gold standard for a healthy human attachment. And to the degree that a child feels a reliable sense through its own experiences in the first two years of life that that will happen, it will then very likely throughout the course of its life feel confident, feel confident in the world of others. That child, if you saw it early on in the playground, would not hover around the mother. That child will go off and play with other kids because that child knows it has what's called a secure base a place to return where the mother will be there, the mother's paying attention, or the father, so the child feels confident. Now, <clears throat> that child will be good at stating its needs, setting boundaries, and it will be uh, uh, essentially capable to balance its life between paying attention to relationships, but also uh, following through with other endeavors, its creative and professional life. What we have is a well-rounded, confident person. And I say, again, this for me is a theoretical construct. I'm still waiting to see these people. I've met them, but they are, in my experience, rare breeds. Unfortunately, if you are in the dating pool right now, 
your chances of stumbling upon them is uh, well, good luck. Is uh, <laughs> the problem with these secure peoples is guess what? They probably are in a relationship, so they're probably not, in fact, on Tinder or Grinder or. Uh, uh, I don't know, okay, Cupid, or wherever people are meeting these days, I'm completely out of the loop. But you get the idea. Because uh, secure people are capable of setting boundaries, expressing their needs, they tend to wind up in very long-lasting relationships. Unconsciously, the secure person will most likely be attracted to other secure people, although they will as well be attracted to people in other attachment types. But they tend to they tend to thrive and last in long term relationships. Now, the other half of the population, the other fifty percent, are what's known as insecure. And insecure uh, attachment falls into three subcategories known as anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. Okay, so it's a little more complicated on the insecure side, but that just that's just thematically consistent consistent that it should be more complicated for them. They are individuals who, for one reason or another, had an insecure relationship with a core caregiver. Now, 25% uh, of the overall population are what's known as anxious, preoccupied. In the language of the street, this is known as love addicts. And uh, it's a terrible phrase, but what the heck, a lot of people have adopted it, so you might as well know that that's what it's colloquially called. Anxious attachment is generally a child who, at a very early age, uh, experienced unreliable connection with a core caregiver. Sometimes that parent would be available, or both parents would be available, but at other core junctures, when the child had very strong emotions, the parent either wasn't available due to divorce or due to uh, being away at work or due to other life stressors or just wasn't capable of stopping and paying attention to the child on a reliable basis. So the child, because the pattern is not reliable, the child begins to desperately try to figure out why and when will it get attention. It's, uh, it will develop what's known as preoccupied uh, tendencies, which is essentially the child will, one, become hypervigilant, very fixated on the caregiver, you know, paying deep attention. Two, it will try to figure out what kind of behaviors lead to rejection, what type of emotions, and will start to withhold those emotions in an attempt to get consistent love. Children are not born with a normative sense of what love should be. No child knows, hey, daddy is just an alcoholic, he's incapable of giving me love, so I'll just wait until I can find other reliable men in my life. That's, children don't know that. Whatever they are given, they believe that's what love is, and they will abandon their own emotions and withhold, hide, and start to conceal their true experience to maintain a connection with their parents because that's, according to uh, Bowlby and Ainsworth and virtually every 
uh, dominant psychologist. Since then, uh, all children, their principal role and job in life is to maintain connection at all costs, no matter how self-sacrificing and how inauthentic they have to be, the child will desperately uh, may try to maintain connection. So um, the anxious develops a um, hypervigilance. And if you saw this anxious child in the playground, the anxious child will be hovering around the mother or father, not going off to play with the other kids, because the child isn't confident that the mother always has its back. So the child maintains proximity. It wants to make sure it's being seen. It is um, very quick to not state what it needs because it's afraid of alienating the parent's attention. It begins to try to, it falls into very early, to, you know, maladaptive strategies like perfectionism. And uh, very interestingly enough, these people because their core caregiver was unreliable, they will in adult life be attracted to unreliable people who sometimes essentially disappear or shut down or switch off their attachment. Avoidance have an even worse experience in the sense that they have a um, relationship that's even less satisfactory than the anxious. The avoidant eventually has a core caregiver that's either deeply enmeshing, engulfing, or a caregiver whose emotions are so inconsistent that the child eventually just gives up and says, you know, connecting and getting intimacy and expressing emotions to other human beings doesn't work. And so this child is still left with needs for food and shelter, which later on in life translate into needs for sex. But it has no real understanding of the beauty and the value of intimacy and emotional vulnerable expression. So this child in the playground will not hover around the mother, will not go off to play with the other kids, will develop extreme self-reliant tendencies where it will go off on its own with its toys and any other kid that wants its toys, it will fight them off and it will become extremely self-reliant. Uh, as this child grows into an adult, they become more and more uh, prone to intellectualizing, which means thinking rather than feeling or acknowledging the role of their emotions. They suppress feelings, and when they are threatened by their partners with breakup, they will just shrug their shoulders and get busy with something else in their life. They don't like to get vulnerable and express their their true, uh, more negative emotions. When other people try to get intimate with them, the avoidant will tune them out, literally will not hear them. There will be voices, but they won't, or they won't understand. They'll say, why are you being so emotional? They just don't get it. Finally, there is the disorganized, of which with my own father I fall into, and I had to do only 20 years of therapy to address. Disorganized is an individual who had some form of abuse or violence in their childhood, and I had quite a lot of it with my drunk dad. There was no shortage of drama in my childhood. 
So as an adult with men, it took years of therapy and working with Buddhists and regular therapists to get to the point where I could be comfortable. Uh, most avoidance, I mean dis disorganized, uh, because of the trauma and the abuse or the violence, tend to, at core situations and relationships, either dissociate or become extremely aggressive or extremely frightened. They tend to shut down or become develop a secondary personality. When I was in the presence of my father as a child, it was unbearable for me not to know when he would become violent. I would rather, as a child, I felt safer knowing which night he would explode. So I would constantly go into a personality of provoking him trying to see if that was the night where he would explode and uh, become dysregulated. And into my adult life with other punks that I hung out with, the ones that were exceptionally macho, I would provoke them to see, you know, just because I felt safer in drama than that's what my, my coping strategies with men were. Until, again, I did literally 15 to 20 years of therapy on this stuff. Thankfully, my mother, I had a secure relationship with her. Now, um, these people have poor self-soothing. They don't know how to because they never had someone uh, uh, reliably uh, soothe their emotions. Generally, the only strategy they know is to get rid of their emotions with substances. There's a high uh, incidence of alcoholism or addiction, and I was a hardcore addict and alcoholic from age 12 to 33. So uh, I spent a lot of years doing that, especially in the presence of peer groups. So the first thing that when people think when they hear these four categories is something along the lines of, well, great, I know other people that fit into those categories, but I don't because I have both anxious and avoidant tendencies. In some relationships I'm anxious, and in other relationships I'm avoidant, or some relationships I'm secure. And actually, that is indeed the case of everybody. The activator that activates the anxious or avoidant tendencies are really getting in relationship with other people who activate your attachment style at its strongest. So if you're anxious, when you are in a relationship with another anxious person, you might act avoidant. You might shut down and have lose interest because they won't remind you of the core caregiver that imprinted your attachment style. But if you are anxious and you unfortunately meet the avoidant, very often the anxious avoidant is female anxious male avoidant. It's not always the rule. Statistically, roughly 65 percent of anxious are women and 65 percent coincidentally of men are <laughs> of 65 of the avoided are men so you get the idea there's a there's a skewer and that's completely social it has nothing to do with any core <coughs> characteristics of men or women it has to do with the way our societies are set up anyway uh, when anxious and avoidance get together, they both remind each other of their core early drama, and they both regress back into their early patterns to survive. The anxious, because she or he is hooked up with somebody who is avoidant, becomes 
preoccupied. They start thinking about about the relationship. They be, they start obsessing about the other person's emails or texts or why they're on Facebook with somebody else or why did they, they say this on that date and they will talk about their experience and they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to solve, unpack the riddle so that they can feel safe in the relationship. The avoidant just doesn't even have a response. They just go off. They have a deep sense of uh, emptiness when it comes to the value very often. And when they see someone who's really being heartfelt and trying to reach out, they will most likely be irritated. When you meet an avoidant, they will very often view other people's heartfelt attempts of communication as bizarre, inscrutable, uh, difficult to understand. Literally, this happened to me. I was talking with a group of avoidant men that I know. And one guy, it was his birthday, and he was dating this woman. And he didn't announce that it was his birthday. But she found out by simply looking at his Facebook page. So she had, in his mind, she had the audacity to say, happy birthday. <laughs> and he literally said at dinner, can you believe that? I mean, why didn't she mind her own business? I was astonished. And I said, well, it is your birthday. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but I didn't tell her. That's my business. And I said, oh my God. Like, literally. And the other guy was... Uh, avoidance said the exact same thing as him. I said, no, it's really not anybody's business. <laughs> so that just for most of us, which just seems like core, natural, intimate, human exchange, uh, for some people is just intrusive and uh, essentially engulfing. Actually, this person has since done a lot of work, and they are now no longer anywhere near the avoidant, thankfully. Um, we also do have very often co-attachment uh, styles. You can have a father who was uh, unavailable, and you could have a dominant anxious style. But if your mother was securely connected with you, you could have a secure connection with other women in your life or other men in your life. So you have two attachment styles that can govern, and that's why you might find it difficult to be in core relationships, but can be very close and intimate with friends. So it's not easy to simply say all the time. In fact, it never works the case that all the time somebody is either anxious or avoidant or secure or disorganized. There's lots of complicating factors. But in general, the biggest emotional wounds of our life will fall into our dominant attachment style. If we are anxious, we will, our biggest emotional wounds that happen in relation with other people will be a romantic set of situations where we wanted love and we became attracted to someone who disappeared or who inscrutably lost interest and uh, created a sense of preoccupation and desperation and an attempt to figure it out. The, if we're avoidant, we will have very, a history of very short-term relationships where we constantly view other people as wanting 
too much from us and uh, always being too emotional. <coughs> and if we're disorganized, we'll be in a 12-step group probably. <laughs> so figure out amongst yourself. And um, if you do recognize a pattern that has played any role in your life, you might want to know, well, how do I might want to change some of the patterns that govern uh, the way I act, either in relationships or with business co-workers. It can, attachment can play out in many different arenas. So the, the core reason why, the, why children stay stuck in their attachment style, and in fact, research shows that roughly 75% of people that are shown to be at, literally at age 18 months, that's when they give them the strange test, which determines attachment style, will maintain their attachment style into their adult life. So there's a 75% chance if you're anxious in childhood, you'll wind up anxious as an adult. Why is that? Well, because the thing that allows a child to know that a caregiver isn't okay and that they need to move on and find another core connection is deprived to the child. The child needs to maintain connection with the parent at all costs to survive. So in most situations in a child life, if somebody is toxic, the child will see that it's upset, it will get sad, it will get disappointed, and then it will move on. But because the child can't do that with the parent, it never has the full experience of grief that allows it to learn and say, well, I guess mommy or daddy uh, have too many things going on in their life to give me reliable love. I'll have to find a replacement figure that will make me feel safe and loved. The child never does that. The child just does anything it can to maintain the connection. The thing that changes a behavior throughout the entirety of our lives, not just in childhood, but throughout our adult life, is emotional experience. We like to believe we can think our way into changing. We like to believe that once we realize something's a bad idea, we will stop doing it. But if you really observe your core behaviors from any sense of distance and reflection, you will find that the thing that changes behaviors is emotional experience, because almost all behaviors are rooted in the right hemisphere and emotional behaviors which are about survival and connection and repeating the patterns and the behaviors that made us feel safe early on. So human beings don't learn from thinking. I can tell you, hey, don't go out with an avoidant person and or you need to make sure that at least one of you is secure in the relationship. And you'll hear that and you'll nod and you go, that's great, yeah, I'll make sure of that. And then, <laughs> then we'll go right back out and hook up with somebody that might cause us a lot of suffering because emotions are what guide our behavior. So the problem is, is that the children who have insecure attachment never have the full experience of grief and disappointment that would allow them to say, hey, I've got to stop looking for love from this person. This is, should not be my model for what love is. I should switch to some other type of human. That just doesn't happen to children. They keep on trying to get mommy or daddy or both to give them love. So the, you might guess that uh, the work of so many contemporary psychologists from Diana Fosha, Leslie Greenberg, Pat Ogden, and so forth, is to give people what's called the core 
emotional corrective experience where in adult life we get to, and this will sound like a lot of fun, experience the grief we never got to experience due to our the times in life we didn't get uh, secure love in childhood. Now, even if you felt you mostly got security in childhood, there's a good chance that in one or two emotions, maybe with anger uh, or maybe with fear or sadness, your parents couldn't handle one emotion. And when you feel that emotion, you will probably then become either very anxious or very avoidant. You'll go away when you feel lonely or sad, or you'll, or you'll become very anxious and try to get uh, someone who's not available to give you love when you feel lonely or sad or angry. So even if you don't fully fit into these patterns in your love life, you might recognize it in certain emotional situations. So the key is to have, one, the full experience where we actually mourn the sadness, the, the last lack of connection, the lack of being seen and accepted in childhood. This has to be attended to in a felt sense. There can be no intellectual quality to it. We have to first feel it, be with it as an embodied state. Children and all human beings learn from first feeling emotions, not from thinking or talking about or reporting their emotions. They have to feel it, get into the body and fully grieve or feel the disappointment so that we can finally give up trying to uh, get orange juice from the hardware store, as they say. So the practice I'll be leading in a little while is a practice that helps us safely connect with that grief. The second thing we need to do is, once we felt the grief, we need to integrate the experience into our, our ability to communicate with others. We need to be able to express that grief to another human being. All human beings are relational. Until we can express the core emotional events of our lives to another, we won't fully learn and we won't fully adapt to the world. So we need to first feel the grief and then vulnerably express the grief because that's essentially completing what we never got in childhood. We never got the mother or father when we were terrified, lonely, angry, scared, frightened, alone, bored, to see our emotions and to mirror them. So we need to recreate the mirroring experience in adult life so that we can finally move on and let go of trying to get love from people who can't give it to us appropriately. Finally, the last thing I'll say is that it's really important to uh, learn some of the tools that will help you spot people who are secure or at least uh, enhance your chances of making a true intimate connection. With both anxious, avoidant, disorganized people, there's a very strong tendency to withhold needs, to not state up front what we want very clearly from a relationship, what our basic needs are to feel safe. We tend to, especially if we're anxious, we will uh, tend to withhold it because we believe if we actually said how we were feeling and what we really needed, how often we needed to be connected, what makes us feel safe, we expect the other person to shrug 
or abandon us. The reason, the reason that anxious people don't state their needs is because they were told by one of their parents very early on, don't be so emotional. And they've heard that subsequently in their life and they begin to believe the bullshit. They begin to believe that somehow their needs are wrong or too much. And so they will withhold their needs and then they'll buy terrible, terrible books that tell them that there are rules to dating <laughs> that they will rely on instead of being open and honest and disclosing how they really feel and being authentic. To be authentic means our actual emotional experience and our self-concept, the way we talk to other people, have to align. The more they, they don't align, the more there is anxiety and suffering in our life. The more the way we think and talk about ourselves is discordant and there's a discrepancy with the way we really feel. So the key is to bring them into alignment. Really express your needs. Don't be ashamed of what you need in a relationship. Nobody has an incorrect need. Okay, so if, some, if you need to see someone or talk with them uh, three, four times a week, if you need to feel that they'll, they'll show up when they say they will, that's an absolutely okay and valid need. Two, take your time. Anxious people have a tendency to trade sex for intimacy because they so want intimacy they'll jump into having sex too soon before they're emotionally ready and when they have sex it activates their attachment and when the other person isn't really available for intimacy then they'll become preoccupied and fully anxious. Take your time and if you really want to do some sleuthing find out about the person you're interested in, what their relational history has been. Actually, that will probably tell you everything you need to know as well. Because people are largely, unless they've been in 20 years of therapy, or they've done a lot of work, people tend to repeat their patterns over and over and over again. So if you meet somebody and they say, oh, you know, in every relationship, you know, I'm always disappointed. They always want too much out of me. They're always, you know, so, um, you know, emotional. They don't uh, leave me enough space politely while keeping your back to the door inch away. <laughs> if you hear someone who's been through a series of six-month relationships and then they always, you know, break down for one reason or another. You'll, you'll, that's what the pattern will be with you. If somebody has a history of uh, long-term addiction, you want to find out that they've not only got, gotten sober, but they've investigated and they've worked on the underlying relational uh, experience between them and their parents. I have been a long, I've been sober for 22 years and I can tell you I know people in AA who've been sober for 20 years and I think uh, you'd be safer dating a pit bull than most of them. So just do your research. Take your time, get to know them, state your needs, set your boundaries. You're much safer being rejected early on than winding up for weeks or months in something and then being mystified and having them disappear. So, 
That's it. Now we're going to do the meditation where we can do some of the real emotional change that we've been talking about. So get really comfortable. Whenever you do a meditation that is uh, working on potentially challenging material, it might not be, but if you, whenever you do any kind of insight practice, you want to be really as comfortable as you can. Don't try to sit in a way that you think is the way a meditator should sit. Let go of all that, that idea that you have to look a certain way. The key thing is try to establish ba balance, which is Keep your head from drifting in front of your shoulders. Keep your head nicely aligned with your shoulders. And then keep your shoulders nicely aligned with your hips. And if you do that, then let everything else in your body relax. Be comfortable. So we'll take a few breaths just to establish some ease and unison. So take a full in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders, if you'd like, up towards your ears and just holding them there while you hold in your breath. And then when you breathe out through the mouth, dropping the shoulders down and pulling them back so you open up your chest nicely, leaving a lot of room for the breath to come in. And with a second deep in-breath through the nose, pull in the belly as taut as you can. So really nice, taut, tight belly. And then breathing out and soften the belly. No defenses, no armoring, just a soft belly. And then for the third in-breath, tightening the toes, the buttocks, the fists, and all of the muscle groups in the face, clenching the jaw, squinching the eyes, holding, and then breathing out, releasing the toes, buttocks, fists, and soften all the muscles in the face, unclenching the jaw. And then take a survey of your body to make sure that you are seated in a sustainable, easeful way. Throughout this meditation, set an intention to be resolutely kind, compassionate, non-judgmental, no matter what your experience is, even if your mind is jumpy and you can't settle it, that's okay. Absolutely, there's no role whatsoever for self-criticism in spiritual practice. There's just no role for it. So, it's all about compassion, self-compassion. It's all about patience. It's all about being kind. It's all about acknowledging our efforts. So for the first part, we're simply going to <coughs> develop a present time awareness of a sensation that's actually occurring. So what's actually occurring? 
There's the sounds from the street. There's the sensation of contact with the cushion you're sitting on. There's the feeling of your clothes. There's perhaps some lights flickering behind your closed eyelids. And perhaps one dominant sensation might be the body that is breathing. And you might feel that either at the tip of your nose or you might feel it in the chest expanding and contracting. You might feel it as a expansion, a swelling and easing of the belly. There is no right or wrong place to feel the breath. If you would like to work with the breath, simply employ at the beginning a counting strategy. So think one while you're breathing in and then think two while you're breathing out. Three while breathing in, think four while breathing out. Then when we reach five, which is an in-breath, and we start counting back down, four on the out, three on the in. So it's a very simple practice of counting from one to five and back down again with two and four always on the out-breath. If you don't like working with the breath, that's absolutely okay. Hold the sounds, hold the present time and sensations, or if you want, you can simply repeat in your mind a very simple phrase, such as, may I feel peaceful, may all beings feel peaceful.
sooner or later a thought will intrude. If the thought doesn't pull you away from the sensations that are actually present, that's okay. Just let it playing there like a TV set in a room. Just know that the TV's on, there's something on it, but keep your attention to other sensations in the foreground, your body, the sounds of the background, so that the thought, the memory, the plan won't be essentially hogging your attention. It won't be in the foreground of your awareness. So long as the thoughts in the background, that's okay. But if a, the inner virtual reality, the TV show in your mind, the thought, the memory, if that grabs hold of you and you lose connection with the breath, if you lose awareness of body sensations, then all it means is wait until you realize that and just note what kind of thought it was and simply bring your awareness back, feel good that you've woken up and set a mental note to promise yourself you'll think about that thought later on.
So at this point you can just take a note of how you're feeling. There's no right or wrong way. But note especially, does your body feel relaxed, comfortable? Are the shoulders relaxed? Is the breath, especially the out-breath, long and smooth? The principal area where core emotions express themselves in the body is down the front, the face, the throat, the chest, and the belly. It's a root called the vagal nerve, and that's where humans express their emotions to others. And so as we do this exercise, pay attention to the front of your body, especially your facial expression, the tightness of your throat, whether your chest feels contracted or hollow, and whether your stomach feels tight or relief. And you might also note the quality of your breathing. So bring to mind someone that you associate with disappointment, disconnection, someone who you wanted to have intimacy, security with, but that was not to be. And just hold the image, don't replay the story. You already know the story very well. What we're going to do now is go beneath the story and see what needs to be felt. So just holding this person that we wanted to have some authentic, vulnerable, intimate bond with, and just while letting their image slowly fade, ask, how does it feel? How does it feel to not get what I so desperately want, what I so, what all human beings so yearn for and long for. How does it feel to not be seen, wanted? How does it feel to be not taken care of, not loved? Whatever language works for you. There is no right or wrong. Just ask in the most caring voice, really genuine interest, how does it feel? Give yourself this time to feel what's been beneath all of the storytelling and the figuring out or the anger, what's beneath it, what's the emotional embodied state. This is where the child that we all hold and bring with us, the wounded child, expresses itself 
the child speaks to us through the body, through the tightness in the belly, the contraction in the chest, the tightness in the throat, around the eyes. It doesn't have to be a strong sensation. It can be a very subtle one. And see if you can find some stirring some expression of loneliness, of longing, of wounded disappointment, that time in our life where we so wanted to feel safe and out of the blue, we didn't. It's not unusual when we first start doing this work to feel very little because the emotions have been so repressed and blocked for so long. So whatever you feel is more than enough. And if you don't really feel anything, if it's just a feels like you can't connect with anything, that's okay. Just the practice itself is worthwhile. Eventually, the feelings do appear when we feel ready, when we're emotionally ready. So if you did feel something, say in the belly or the chest or the throat, just relax all the other areas of the body around it so that you can be with the feeling without the rest of the body becoming contracted and tight. So wherever you feel your emotions, relax everywhere else, soften. And then finally send a very gentle message, I care about you, I'll take care of you. This is the adult part of your mind talking to the wounded child, as it were. I care about you, I'll take care of you. I care about you, I'll take care of you. I care about you, I'll take care of you. A 
Finally, as the last practice, bring to mind an image of yourself as a child. Whatever image comes to mind, don't overthink it, just hold an image. An image of a time perhaps when you were so much more vulnerable and so the pains of disconnection were so great, much greater. And just holding that image just in your mind, a gentle, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. And so, at this point, I'm going to encourage you to very slowly let go of the image of yourself and open your eyes just to look at the ground in front of you. Take in the light and the color of the floor. And try to bring whatever feeling, state of being, you've connected with, don't push it away. Keep it with you. That's how we integrate and how we get our needs met and how we live authentic lives is to not run from our feelings but to bring our feelings with us into our adult life.